Leadership is an important topic that we speak often about on CXO Talk. Joel Peterson. He is the chairman of JetBlue, and he's written a book. It's called Entrepreneurial Leadership. Joel, tell us about the things you do. You, you've got your hands in all kinds of interesting things. Besides uh, teaching at Stanford and writing books and uh, being at JetBlue, I've been the chairman of the Hoover Institution, uh, Board of Overseers, uh, for a while. I've uh, invested in about 250 companies. I've served on 35 boards. I was the uh, large real estate company. And I was probably one of the original uh, members of the gig economy. You're chairman of JetBlue, and of course, this whole global health crisis situation has affected the airlines tremendously. As, a, as an insider, can you share your thoughts or observations? It's been brutal. Uh, our revenues have dropped between 90 and 95%. Uh, we've grounded about 170 planes. Uh, it's a very difficult operating environment, as you can imagine. Uh, we've never furloughed anybody, and of course, this time we have the help of the government uh, to cover salaries uh, for people through the end of September, at which time we hope the travel industry will come back. There's a lot of pent-up demand, and there are changes that we're making to accommodate uh, travelers in the future. Can I ask what kinds of changes uh, are you referring to? Well, the kinds of things that, you know, safety is our number one uh, value at JetBlue. And air travel is the safest form of travel. The air in the fuselage is the cleanest air on the planet. The filtration systems are phenomenal. But we'll probably be taking people's temperatures. We're having people wear masks. We're not uh, uh, selling tickets for the center seat. Um, so we're, we're just taking every precaution so that everything is safe. I know revenues, as you mentioned, have taken a huge hit. Do you, what do you see as the pathway forward? At some point, uh, travel has to come back at some level uh, for there really to be a path forward. But I think it's a pretty draconian outcome to say nobody will ever travel again. Jet uh, travel will be off forever. People want to be with family, friends, uh, hold business meetings. People like travel. And it is such a safe form of travel. It's much safer than any other form. So I think there are a lot of reasons that it'll come back. People just have to feel absolutely safe. And so we're working, doing everything we can to do that. Joel, why did you write this new book called Entrepreneurial Leadership? I've worked with leaders now for almost a half a century. And I've noticed that some are fundamentally presiders some are managers, they deal with complexity extraordinarily well. Others are administrators, they understand policy and its implications and second and third order consequences. Others are entrepreneurs, they light fires, they innovate, but they can't keep them burning. And finally, there are politicians who understand power, who manage through fear and reward, reward friends, punish enemies, and get things done that way. But really, to knit them all together, uh, in the entrepreneurial leader, who is somebody who can create durable change, is relatively rare. And we need more of them in the world. And particularly at the time of this crisis, everybody is going to have to become an entrepreneurial leader. No more just presiding. No more just being a politician. People are going to have to reimagine their businesses and uh, really be entrepreneurial leaders. You mentioned the concept of being a durable leader. Everybody needs to be an entrepreneur. When you talk about being a durable leader, what does that mean? Well, it means creating an organization that is durable, that lasts through thick and thin. And we are in, now in thin times and people have to figure out 
you know, how do we uh, survive these kinds of moments? Uh, the first thing that people have to do is preserve cash. If there is no short run, there, there'll be no long run. So people have to figure out how to extend the runway. Uh, then they have to think about the brand that they would like to emerge with. So I think reimagining businesses and how do you satisfy customers and uh, employees? And then I think they're going to have to figure out the mindsets that they want to radiate uh, in order to get through these tough times. Every entrepreneur has to face difficult circumstances at some point or another. You're talking not so much about the mechanics of running a company. You're talking about the entrepreneur's relationship, uh, mental relationship, really, to the business. Is that correct? I'm talking about both. There's a set of mindsets that you have to have. You have to really uh, be oriented the right way. But then there's really a, almost a series of checklists. Uh, I've written uh, 10 things that I think every entrepreneur runs into. And how do you go about, what are the checklists for selling, negotiating, raising capital, running a board effectively, dealing with adversity, making decisions under conditions of uncertainty, et cetera, et cetera. So those are very much actionable, running the business kinds of things. So uh, it deals with both. Your book begins with trust, the concept of trust. Why is trust so important? And it's one of these terms that pretty much every business toss around. You know, trust is our currency. Tell us about trust. People think of trust as this fuzzy, feel-good thing. It's a word that is not well-defined, uh, and it's not really clearly thought through. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Ten Laws of Trust, in which I tried to factor analyze, you know, what makes up a high trust organization? Are there things you can do? Can you be intentional about building a high trust organization? And I came to the conclusion that there really are, and that people can overcome betrayal, and that high trust organizations outperform low trust organizations. They make decisions faster, they're more flexible, they innovate, and people have more fun. The challenge with building trust, I think, for many, for many leaders, for many organizations, is we have conflicting sets of goals and priorities. And so how do you navigate these conflicting goals and emerge on the other side building trust? The second foundation of becoming an entrepreneurial leader is to have a clear mission, is to not have conflicting goals and priorities. And so people need to work those through. I think they... Trust does suffer if people are climbing different peaks. Uh, we really need to all be belayed climbing the same peak. So that's one of the ways that you do that. You should expect that there will be disappointments. There will be betrayals. And you have to fix those. And you have to fix them right away. We have a comment from Arsalan Khan on Twitter, which I think captures an important point. He talks about culture and organizational politics and these can be, trust can be sacrificed on the, on the altar, so to speak, of trust in organizational politics. And so, so again, how do we manage that? Politics can get in the way of a lot of things. If people have different agendas, uh, my experience is establishing the principle that the best idea wins, not the most powerful person. Trust is all about power. And if an organization is driven by power, it will typically be a low trust organization. So your, your trust can either derive from the fact that you control uh, people's uh, salaries, you control their bonuses, what office they sit in, uh, or it can come because they enjoy the same 
objectives you have, that winning for both of you is the same. And I think that's a much more powerful way. So there's a lot of power that comes from all trusting each other. And I think that's the kind of power that endures. Can you give us an example of trust, and trust the, the, the challenges of trust, trust, trust in action? Early on in my career, not so early, but uh, I was actually the CEO of a real estate company that had to do what we call workouts. We couldn't pay all of our debts. The properties were not leasing up, so we had to renegotiate these loans. Had we not had high trust among each other, among suppliers, among lenders, investors, we could not have worked it out. It was only because they believed that we would do a better job than anyone else at leasing up the space, at paying them back, uh, that they would trust us to to take a little bit longer to pay them. And that's really what a lot of businesses are going to have to have right now. By the way, you can't start building that trust in the crisis. You have to do that well before the crisis. So trust is built a layer at a time, a conversation at a time, a molecule at a time. When we think about business, we think about winner take all. I want everything. I want the largest share of the pie. And yet it seems to me that that attitude undermines the creation of trust. So again, I keep coming back to how do you balance these multiple agendas, multiple goals? Well, I think that idea that winner takes all is a terrible notion for business. I think you should be solving for fairness. You want other people to win too. And uh, I think the, the idea that you're a fiduciary, you're a fiduciary for your customers, for your communities, for your employees, and you're solving for all things considered good outcomes. You have to grow. You have to have profits to stay in business over the long run. So you solve for that. But this idea of maximizing quarterly profits, winner take all, is actually a very short-term thing. And when you get in conditions of adversity like we're in now, it may fail you. Can you please elaborate on that, solving for fairness? It's such a, it's such a different way of thinking than many business leaders possess. I think you'll find that you rarely come to agreement without a bunch of fighting. So agreements happen much faster if you're solving for fairness. You know, I used to try to listen to what would my, the opposing party like to see happen, and then I'd price. Uh, in a negotiation, I would say, okay, they want this, that, and the other. Here's how I can provide them what it is they want most. And I just price it in a way that works for me. Too. So I'm solving for them having a win in a way that I don't have a loss. The idea that everything is a zero-sum game, I think, is a flawed concept and makes for what I would call episodic negotiations rather than serial negotiations. I think the wise entrepreneurial business leader is solving for relationships, for serial negotiations, for multiple transactions. It's a much better way to do business than just the episode where you win and uh, go off with your winnings. On LinkedIn right now, Jennifer Cox points out that trust is earned by clear, honest communication. And Constance Woodson makes the comment that clarity is crucial in building trust. So, so would you talk about the role of communication in establishing trust? Clear communications, transparency, communicating bad news as well as good news before, during, and after an event. Uh, not uh, kind of, uh, you know, how, how people sometimes today spin things. They release information on Friday afternoon or whatever. People are too smart. They'll figure that out. So to me, being transparent 
If there's a mistake that's been made, admitting it, admitting it up front. Uh, but I think even more important than communication is actually delivering on promises. You know, if you deliver on promises, you will build trust. And many times the communications will take care of, itself, of themselves at that point in time. The foundation of trust then is fairness and doing that which you have committed to do, to fulfilling your promises. Yeah. And that's your brand too, Michael. If, you know, if you, you have a brand, people expect certain things out of companies. They expect certain things out of individuals. If you deliver on that brand, if you deliver on that promise, your trust quotient will go up and people will allow you to make decisions. You'll become predictable. And by the way, if you're predictable, the people that are following you are empowered. They can take decisions knowing that you'll support them. You've mentioned a couple of times mission. And that's the next point that you cover in your book after trust. So tell us about mission, please. So people work for meaning. They, you know, particularly this uh, next generation of workers, they, they're really volunteers. They're information workers. And so they want to do something that has meaning to them. And so I find that a mission really captures uh, that idea. A mission is not the same thing as a mission statement. Mission statements are also often crafted in the boardroom or in the corner office and delivered to the organization. A mission is what people really are excited about. And I've found that a mission, if it's crafted by the people who are going to execute it, you don't need to worry about motivating them. It's what they care about. And so if they're on a winning team working towards a meaningful mission, they are motivated. When it comes to trust, pretty much every CEO says, you can trust us. And pretty much every CEO says, our mission is blank that will save the world. And somehow I think it's, I think you're not, you're talking about something a little bit different. What I've often said is that that mission statement that's framed and hung in the boardroom or what the CEO says from the corner office often creates cynicism. It often reduces the trust level of an organization. Why? Because it isn't lived. Your mission statement should capture your priorities. What do we do when we have to make trade-offs? And if it accurately reflects that and is owned by the people, then it doesn't create cynicism. If it's the other, then I would think that trust levels will actually go down. Joel, what's the relationship then between the mission and the brand, the company's brand? They're connected. They're related. These are cousins. The idea of vision, mission, uh, tagline, brand, all these things are related concepts, but they're all slightly different. They have slightly different audiences. If they're inconsistent, they will actually destroy trust. If they're consistent, then they can speak a slightly different language to every set of customers. The next topic in your book is securing the team. Where does that, where does that fit into the sequence here? Well, business is a team sport. <laughs> And if you don't have the right team on the field, you're not going to win. And uh, by the way, businesses change over time. So the team you start with may not be the right team for how the world has evolved, how competitors have evolved, what's happened with your product, et cetera. But as a leader, you have to always secure the right team on the field. And that means changes, it means adding new people. It means demoting some, promoting some, and removing some. And so learning how to manage that team process is a really vital element of becoming an entrepreneurial leader. The most basic discussion of 
entrepreneurship focuses on you need the right team. So, so what's different here? Well, what's different is there's a series of checklists and mindsets that you can go into to think about how do I source the right people? How do I onboard them? How do I do due diligence? What mindset do I have when I've made a mistake and I have to remove somebody? So it's really just making sure that this whole process of securing the right team at all times is done well. You know, our pilots at JetBlue go through a checklist. Some of them have been flying planes for 25 years, and they probably know by heart the checklist, but they pull out the checklist every single time, and they go through each item and make sure that they're doing. This book should help the entrepreneurial leader think about all the elements they need to go through to make sure we've got the right team on the field. Given the fact that building a team is one of the most obvious foundational parts of creating a new company, what is it that founders tend to do wrong? Several things. One is they don't realize that this uh, idea of the founder's trap, that they may actually become the problem. And in many cases, organizations fail because they've outgrown the founder. The founder is no longer the right person to lead it or might not ever become an entrepreneurial leader is really a serial entrepreneur, an innovator, but not beyond that. So that's one. Uh, another is people tend to hire themselves over and over and over again. And you get these organizations that they have a bunch of mini-me's and uh, you don't have this, the kind of inclusion and diversity that you really need to have a great organization. Another thing is with change, uh, jobs outgrow people and you need to add new folks. Um, and so. Uh, an organization that builds up dead wood will be an organization that fails over time. So you have to keep refreshing and you have to do it in a thoughtful, generous way. So you're not just always everybody's job is on the line every month or every quarter. That would be a brutal place. People need to be able to live and grow and be part of the team. But everybody needs to understand that they're there as long as they can play that position better than somebody else. We keep talking about these issues where there are at least on the surface, conflicts. And so, for example, you, you mentioned the need to refresh the team, to, to be on top of the capabilities of the team as well as your own if you're the, the CEO. And yet, at the same time, you talk about doing that in, in, in a thoughtful way so that it doesn't create a brutal environment. There are very few, in my observations, there are very few leaders who, do, who balance these well. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be done and shouldn't be thought about. And I think letting people go generously, thoughtfully, not surprising them. Um, I just published an article in the Harvard Business Review that talked about gracefully letting somebody go. And I think you want to be generous. Uh, you made the mistake as well as the person. And maybe it wasn't a mistake. Things just changed. And so it's up to you to have a mindset that goes into this, wanting that person to have the best opportunity they can possibly have. So you, again, are a fiduciary for them and you have to do it. You're a fiduciary for the company and you're a fiduciary for the other party. Uh, if it was a mistake, it was yours as well as theirs. So I think going in with that mindset is quite helpful. You mentioned earlier uh, solving for fairness. So when you're undertaking these kinds of negotiations, how do you balance the interests of the two sides so that in fact you can solve for fairness? It starts with thinking about the individual and helping them. And, if, and really, if you think about that, Michael, you are solving for the organization, too, because the organization is watching. Everybody sees themselves in the role of the person being let go or being talked about or whatever. And being gracious 
being thoughtful, giving them extra time, being generous. All those are mindsets that everybody will take into account and will benefit the organization. What about the situation that happens very often where a company is struggling, it's you know, there's a cash crunch, what have you, and they and the the CEO wants to solve for fairness, but there simply aren't the resources available. Whether 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 in actuality or mentally in the CEO's mind. Well, if it's only mentally in the CEO's mind, then I think they need to get more information and really think about it. But if in point of fact there are limitations on resources, there are not limitations on kind words, on recommendations on giving people extra time, office space. Uh, there are a lot of things you can do that help people find the next position in life. And I think you're obligated to do that. As you teach your classes and as you uh, are, have been leading businesses, what has the, the, I mean, maybe this is an obvious question, what has the reception been to this way of thinking and this way of establishing a culture? I think people are relieved in a way. I think a lot of the uh, notions around business are that it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and that it's brutal and all that matters are quarterly profits and everybody's out for themselves. It's driven by fear and by reward. And I try to convince people that really the more powerful motivators are duty and love. If you really care about people, if you can build a caring organization, uh, you know, we found at JetBlue, for example, we've given over a million hours to our communities. And these are our crew members who volunteer time. And guess what? That helps us hire better people, hire people. And they want to stay longer because they're doing something that's meaningful. So I think you can really create a culture of care, a culture of having more uh, than just quarterly profits that you're working towards. On LinkedIn, we have a question from Russ Finney. And Russ asks, do you have a tip for when to keep listening and when to be decisive? So there's always a tension between getting more information and pulling the trigger. Information costs time, it costs money, et cetera. I think listening is typically not very expensive. I think listening until you've captured the essence of what somebody is saying until they say, okay, you've got it, is typically not expensive and typically builds trust. So I'm a big believer that listening is the most important form of communication. I think if leaders learn to be great listeners, they'll learn to make great decisions and people will support them if they feel heard. Many times you can disagree with somebody says, but if you feel that you've been heard, you'll support the decision. As I talk with business leaders on CXO Talk, responsiveness and agility and speed are among the, the key attributes people talk about, business leaders talk about. And isn't there a cost to listening in terms of speed? There can be. In most cases, the cost is dithering. People put it off and they want more information. In fact, a lot of my students uh, won't pull the trigger on a case issue because they say, well, I need more information. I can't make the decision without more information. So in many cases, that's what's holding them up. Listening to people, though, I think if, the, if you have an idea that there's an open forum, that people can submit suggestions, that you'll capture them, and that you feed back to them, here's what I've heard. You know, it's, what's frustrating is when people give suggestions and then they never hear back. They don't know what the feedback is. But if you'll feed back to them what they've said, that doesn't take much time, money, effort, energy, 
and it actually gives the organization this sense of connectivity. So I don't think there's a huge trade-off there. So you mean really listening, not just paying lip service and, and going through the motions. Yeah, there's no other kind of listening other than really listening and capturing. The other is just pausing and being quiet for a minute while you compose your thoughts uh, to jump in and deliver what you think without really listening. And we've all sat in conversations where people have done that. Moetasum Kurshid asks, geographical location of businesses do have an impact on how trust is read and understood or the element of how trust is read it, or is there an element of how trust is read that is common across locations and geographies? So I think that they're talking about the common basis of trust. I'm guessing uh, they're talking about cultural differences, uh, not geography. Uh, geography may have slight differences, but they really are related to culture. Well, people have learned to think about things. And I think that's a great comment. Uh, I think, so I've lived overseas and led things overseas, and I've found over time that people are people. And, you, and it may take longer to develop a trust relationship. It may mean uh, inviting them into your home. It may mean more meals. It may mean whatever. But ultimately, people want interpersonal connections, and they want to know that they can believe you. And uh, I think that's true across cultures, at least the ones that I've, I've dealt with. It may take longer and may, may have a different process. Would it be accurate to say that if it builds trust, it's pretty darn universal? I think so. It may take longer and may have a different route to getting there. But I think trust is something that is a human yearning. We want to, because it, it gives you a sense of predictability. It allows you to take action, makes you less weary. You're wary. You're happier. And so I think it's something to strive for in every culture. It just may take longer and be have a different, more circuitous, circuitous route. But I actually think it's something to solve for in every instance. Again, solving for trust. I mean, that's what it's, trust solving. Exactly, for exactly. You have to really understand what trust is, though. I think this idea that it's this fuzzy, feel-good notion uh, can actually be naive and detrimental. You can set yourself up for betrayal. Trust, in the end, is derivative of character, competence, and the authority to deliver on promises. And all three must be present for you to trust in a smart way. So I think the more that you can factor analyze trust and be smart about it, uh, the more likely you are to have a real trust, a real reciprocal trust, and not the pseudo trust that sometimes exists in a contractual world. Arslan Khan says, listening can also have biases from where the information is coming from and how it is interpreted. Should organizations train their employees in bias training so that they don't make those mistakes? Well, absolutely. There's no question that there are biases uh, everywhere. But I think the fact of listening and reflecting, what I heard you just say is the following. There's really not much downside in that. I don't necessarily have to accept it, but you'll feel differently if I've really correctly captured what it is you're saying. I think that's the starting point for developing a trust relationship. Uh, the filter of bias, you know, I need to be able to use to evaluate whether or not I'm going to take action based on it, but it doesn't necessarily filter whether or not I've actually captured what it is you've said to me. You talk then about delivering results. Why do you bring that up in your book? Because it seems pretty obvious, like that's what we do in business, right? We get, get stuff done. If only. In a lot of cases, projects don't get done. They don't get done on time. They don't get done on budget. 
the deliverables aren't what we wanted. The products or services don't work the way we want. Customers are unhappy. So uh, that's in theory what we do. But in reality, there's a lot of slip ups and uh, trust is diminished every time there's a slip up and it's increased every time we deliver. So if there's a slip up or what I would call a betrayal of trust, the only thing you can do is go in and fix it. And recognizing it as quickly as possible and fixing it as quickly as possible is how you restore trust. Where does honesty come into play? And to what extent should a leader be honest when there is a problem about the causes of the problem and even what's, what's going on? There's kind of no place for dishonesty. Um, there can, a case can be made for not disclosing everything. It might hurt some people to disclose everything. We don't need to assign blame on everything. And so some people might call that being dishonest. My own view is it's the results we're solving for. Fixing the problem and uh, moving on is really the important thing. So I, I don't think there's a place for dishonesty, but I don't think full disclosure on every item is necessary. It may do more harm than good. What about the fact that no plan is perfect. The, the moment we put a plan into place, it's going to change. And so when you think about delivering results, how do you factor uncertainty and risk into, the, into that equation? You always have to take it into account. And I think the smart leaders are the ones that are influenced by new information. And they don't feel like they have to protect past decisions. They admit mistakes. They admit new information. They change directions. Uh, they're disclosive. Along the way, I always think of this old story of Mike Tyson. He said, everybody, uh, everybody has a plan until I punch him in the face. And that's kind of what the market does. It punches you in the face and you have to adjust your plan. You've seen so many business situations. Can you share with us any examples of managing through the challenges of, of ambiguity? I think almost Every business situation is uh, one of ambiguity. We don't, not only are you entering a field where you don't know where the market is actually going to go, Every, markets are all dynamic, but you don't know how competitors are going to respond. Uh, I remember early on at JetBlue, we were, the low, we were a low-cost airline and we were trying to uh, service different markets and we decided to fly into Atlanta. And uh, at that time, Delta had a, a low-cost uh, product they called Song. And so they, we were selling flights for $49 a piece from Long Beach to Atlanta, and Delta came in at $39 a piece and said, we're Delta, we can stay at $39 as long as we need to to keep you out of Atlanta. And so we adjusted our plan. We got hit in the face, we got punched in the face, and we, we retreated. So it's always adjusting. You adjust to market conditions, to the realities on the ground. If you don't do that, it's a slow route to bankruptcy. So the adaptability, but then that requires that you have the, the pieces in place, right? You need to have people who can adapt to change. You have to have a culture that has the expectations that you will adapt to change. So it's, it's, it's easy to talk about, but it seems like there's a lot, of, uh, a lot that must take place under the surface in order to enable that. Well, and that starts with the leader saying, okay, we need to change. Or I made a decision based on X, Y is now the circumstance, we need to change. It takes a certain vulnerability and humility with leaders. And actually, one of the items I list in the, under the laws of trust is humility. You know, leaders, if you want to build a high trust organization, you have to be humble. And humble just doesn't mean that you're self-deprecating. It means that you're learning. You're ever-changing. 
And that's a, a form of humility that really creates trust. Joel, you keep saying these things that uh, fly in the face of what we typically or very often see. For example, humility. If we think about some of the brash, the great entrepreneurs of our time, how brash they are, you know, one does not associate, for example, humility with Elon Musk, just as one example. There are some that kind of fly in the face that on the other hand, my guess is that he's listening to the market. He's changing his ears to the ground. So that form of humility. So some people may have a brash envelope around their humility. But if you are absolutely proud and unwilling to, to listen to things, you'll go bankrupt. And I think the other thing is you'll have a hard time getting people to follow you if you steamroll them and, are, and don't ever listen to them. So I think humility, you know, it's, it's more fun to talk about the brash and those who aren't humble. And so we notice them more than we do the humble leaders. But there are many, many, what Jim Collins called level five leaders who really are humble, who listen, who build great companies. We just don't read about them. As you said, in the case of someone like Elon Musk, who on the surface obviously is very brash and very arrogant, obviously he is listening very carefully to the market. And so we have to make the distinction then, as you're pointing out, between the, the personality and the rapper and the underlying mechanisms that are actually taking place. Exactly. Any final thoughts, advice that you would like to share? If you can kind of sum up everything that you've learned, what's most important? You know, it's a little bit like the question, uh, is food, air, or water most important <laughs> for life? You know, we die without all of them. So in my view, these uh, recipes, these checklists for entrepreneurial leadership are really how you build a great and enduring company. What I would say... Uh, Above all is this notion of being a fiduciary. As a business leader, you are responsible to others. And it's not just Wall Street. You are responsible to investors, no question about it. But at Peterson Partners, for example, the uh, investment firm I founded, we basically said, we're going to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. Well, our entrepreneurs are one kind of customer. Our investors, our limited partners, are another kind of customer. But we prioritized our entrepreneurs. And so deciding that we're a fiduciary for those entrepreneurs allows us to then serve all these other customers that we've got. So I think thinking about that, I think approaching the world as a fiduciary, being kind in the long run is much more powerful. Building trust is much more powerful than operating through fear and force. And so I would encourage uh, entrepreneurial leaders, particularly in this time as we overcome adversity, reimagine our uh, enterprises, Becoming an entrepreneurial leader is vital. And also you're advocating being very, very clear about the priorities and the what are your goals, what are your priorities, so that you can make trade-offs based on those priorities as an indisputable reference point. Exactly. Joel Peterson, the chairman of JetBlue, professor at Stanford, and lots of other things too. Thank you very, very much for sharing your insight and experience with us today. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Everybody, thank you for watching. Before you go, please, please subscribe on YouTube and subscribe to our website. Click the subscribe button at the top of our website. We have amazing guests coming up. The week after next week, there's no show. The week after that, we have the president of technology for UPS. That's going to be a very interesting conversation. And check out CXOTalk.com. There's a lot there. 
Thanks so much, everybody. I hope you have a great day. And to the people who ask questions, huge thank you to you. Bye-bye. Stay safe.